Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full studio here today. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. Brian. Good morning, everybody. Bob. Hello, Brad. And we have Dr. Julia Herman with us, who is the beef cattle specialist for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. She really focuses on education and outreach. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. And happy to have you with us here in person. You were able to spend some time with some of our students last night. You met with some of the ag group as well as some of the bovine club here at the veterinary school. And they said they enjoyed having the meeting and you guys had a great roast beef dinner. Oh, it was fantastic. Got some really good beef and had some great discussion with the students. Excellent. We'll have great discussion today because we're going to talk about some topics that I think will be relevant, including a listener question. So we're going to talk a little bit about as we go to grass turnout, what are some of the considerations for processing those calves, those young calves that come in? We'll also talk about a listener question regarding implanting young calves. And we're going to finish up with before we go to turnout, what's our pre-pasture turnout checklist. So before we get into those topics, I had a question for you guys. And sometimes when you travel, the foods are different regionally. So I traveled a couple weeks ago to the Southeast. And one of the things I had was grits, which I frankly did not enjoy. But I would like to know what local food, what's one of your favorites that's kind of niche food in a specific area of the country that you say, man, I really like when I go there, I'm getting this. Dustin, I'm going to you first. You're our traveler. So last week I was in Denver at NCBA, and we had beef. I really liked it. <laughs> that's, your, that's, that... che- that's cheating. I'm oh. coming back to you. You got to give me something more than that, Brian. Uh, I, I'm, I like seafood. I, when I go to the coast, I always I get some seafood. Yeah, it's not as fresh here in Kansas. Uh, no, no. Bob, I just, I just, I'm gonna actually agree with with uh dustin I, anytime i can get a steak like so kansas city if i go someplace exotic like kansas city i like to get a good kansas city steak but the other one i do like is uh the crab cakes in in maryland i've got uh, relatives that live you know not too far from baltimore and if you go to baltimore you got to get a crab cake julia well i guess i'm gonna piggyback on all three of those because that sounds like a great idea but i also like to go to the microbrews in all the different places so i try to I try to have the beer every time I, every place I go. The local beer. Did you come up with anything besides? So one of my favorite foods, I like Greek, but I also like Ethiopian. Uh, and so I will actually be heading to Ethiopia here in a couple of weeks. And so I'm pretty excited to go. I don't know what that, like, like, give me an example of an Ethiopian well, it's, dish. It's beef. It's just the different spices. Mm-hmm. Uh, huh. But a lot of this time it's something called injera. So it's like a pancake that you don't use the utensils. You use that to pick up your meat and your. Who uses utensils for pancakes? Well, I thought that was normal. I'm going to try some of your Ethiopian food. That sounds, that sounds really good. One of the things this time of year, we're getting ready to turn out. We're going to go to grass. We're going to talk about our checklist in a minute, but I want to talk about uh, processing calves. So in, in different regions of the country, sometimes this will be called branding time or pasture turnout time. And we're really focused on those calves that were born this spring and they are, let's say, 60 to 90 days of age. And I want to start out with some general recommendations that we may think about. What all are we going to be doing to those calves? One of the things that we may be doing is castrating the males. So, Brian, is there any considerations there when we think about castrating those male calves? So, I guess a couple of things. So, one is what method are you going to use? Okay, so we've got a couple of different methods we can use for castration. Uh, we can use banding. We can use 
knife cutting. We can use, there's still some people around using Berdizo method, but it probably even beyond that. And one of the things you need to think about is, is pain control. So if you're castrating, we highly recommend some method of pain control and there are no drugs that are approved for pain control associated with castration. And so to do that, you need to have a veterinarian involved uh, because it's an off-label use. And it really work with your veterinarian to decide which one of the products that we have available is probably the best. There's there's kind of some advantages, disadvantages to the three or four options that would be commonly used out there. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a consideration as we get those calves and that typically the younger, the better. So if you've got them done before this point, if you do them right, if you're catching them right after birth and putting the tag in and castrating then, that's better than waiting until now, which is better than weaning. But if we're putting those tags in, Bob and Julia, what are, what are some of the considerations for if I'm tagging the calves as they go through, where do I want to put those tags, Julia? Paying attention to what type of tag you're putting in. So there are metal clips that we're using, but those are going to get phased out here. Uh, we have the the, ta- the herd tags that just hang down from the ear, and then you also have the button tags. But paying attention to which, which ear needs to go where, there are official tags that need to go into the right ear. Your other tags can go elsewhere, but it's in that middle rib. There's three different valleys, as what I call it, in the ear, and you want to make sure that you're in that middle rib because that way, it, less of a less of a risk of those of those tags getting ripped out. And uh, it's pretty easy to find. Absolutely. So a, a lightweight tag for these calves, and a lot of times a calf tag versus a cow tag, you can pick a one-piece or a two-piece depending on what makes sense for your operation and what's easiest to use. But put it in the right spot so that it doesn't droop the ear and it's more likely to stay in place. So let's talk about before we get into what injections to give, Julia, tell us a little bit about where where should we give those injections? And I'm going to preface it with saying we're talking about calves that are 60 days of age. They're not going to go to slaughter for probably a year, 10 months to a year. Great question. So any of our vaccine or any of our vaccines, any of our injections uh, should be given in the neck of the animal. And uh, this is advice coming from the Beef Quality Assurance Program. But we have seen that even if you uh, give a vaccine in the thigh of a calf, that can cause scarring in that meat. And you can see that clear down at, down the road when they when those animals are slaughtered. And so, so even if they're given at this time, when the calf's 60 days of age. Correct. Yeah. Even we see needle tracks in the those cuts of meat at slaughter. And it doesn't matter what type of product you're giving, but we recommend all injections being given in the neck. And whether you're rope and drag branding or you're running the calves through the chute, you have access to that neck and that's where it should be given. So you have access to the neck, but Bob, in some of these calves, there's not a lot of neck there, right? <laughs> these right? There's not a lot of spots to give this injection. So how do I, what, what's one of the ways I make sure that I get my injection in the right spot? Well, a couple of things is follow the label. And if the label allows sub-Q under the skin rather than IM, I like that. And um, I'll go with a low-volume product if it's available. I'll use a sub-Q product if it's available. And you do have two sides of the neck if you're giving more than one, one vaccine. The other thing is make sure that you're using the right size needle, both the diameter of the needle and the length of the needle for these calves because they basically smaller needles than what you would use on a mature cow. This is not a cow, right? You you get a cow, her skin is going to be thick. 
you get these babies, their skin is not thick. There's not a lot of musculature under there. And the beef quality assurance that Julia mentioned, hopefully you're BQA certified. Even if you're not, you can look up online and there's a whole chart of needle sizes based on what you're giving and where you're giving it and what size animals. So I, I would recommend that you go look at that. So you guys are talking about where to give these injections. What what kind of vaccines are we giving? Well, one of the first things on, if we're talking about calves getting ready for turnout, so these are springborn calves getting ready to go to grass pretty soon, probably the, the vaccine that is close to universal is some sort of a clostridial vaccine. And clostridial vaccine is actually kind of a, a class of bacteria. And there's several different diseases that we're vaccinating against. Two that people may recognize are black leg. And another one is tetanus. And this actually ties in with our method of castration. Because particularly if you're using banding or something like that, then including tetanus in your clostridial vaccine becomes really important. Uh, if you're using a knife cut, it's, it's usually not as big a risk. And so that's probably the vaccine that almost every calf at, at turnout time, probably uh, most herds are going to use some sort of a clostridial vaccine. Brian, when we think about what, what about some viral vaccines? Well, and my answer to the question earlier about if you have running out of places to give injections, I don't know that these little calves need that many injections, you know, and we, you know, there's a few episodes ago, we talked to Dr. Willems about, you know, young, really young calves and how likely they are actually to respond to some of these products. And so it, I know we say this a lot, but it really is a discussion you need to have with your veterinarian about what challenges do I have on my operation specifically? What age of calf am I vaccinating? All, all those things need to come into play and to really come up with tailored vaccine program for your operation. And I think beyond what Bob said about, I agree, clostridial vaccines, we can probably sit here and say, yeah, universally, most young calves probably need a clostridial vaccine or maybe a couple if we include tetanus. But beyond that, it, it there's some specific questions we have to ask before we can say this is the right vaccine or this is the right vaccine for you. So great point, Brian. A couple weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Willems from Mississippi State. She talked about pre-weaning BRD. If pre-weaning respiratory disease is a problem on your operation, you might need a different strategy than a baseline. There is no singular generic vaccine strategy that we'd apply to all herds. Before we, before we move on, a bit of trivia, and Bob, I think I, you know this one, so I'll ask Julia and Brian. Where were, when Black leg vaccines came out, clostridial vaccines. They were one of the first vaccines. And where was the first injection site that they were typically given? I don't know this. Brian? I, yeah, I don't know. Go ahead, Bob. I, I, I think, was it, was it the brisket? Yeah, I remember actually seeing yeah. some pictures and stuff about that. Didn't you, you may have administered. Did you Yeah, Bob was old enough. He was probably there. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you thought I would remember that. Okay. <laughs> thought you would remember Sorry. back in the 1890s yeah. uh, i'm not i'm not giving you grief don't do so, that folks <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh no yeah we're not recommending that. i'm saying that's where they were when they originally and we've come a long way in learning about even however you vaccinate those calves follows them all the way through to slaughter so let's move on to our listener question and this question i think is a, a really good one and, it, and it's from an operation that keeps they're some of their heifers and some of their bulls for breeding and they're saving those back on their herd and his question was I know that implanting heifers especially at this time we're talking about right their young calves is probably not good for them because it's not going to pay off it could cause some reproductive issues and the question was what about implanting 
bulls. So for those bulls that may be safe for breeding and Bob, I'm going to turn to you first. This is, is a good question because it's important that people recognize if you're going to save bulls for breeding, they must not be implanted. Uh, the implants will cause some serious negative impacts on fertility and, and several other problems. So basically we only implant males that have been castrated. And so I like them castrated prior to, or at the same time they're being implanted. Uh, so I think that is an important thing to recognize is, is the growth implants will have a negative effect on male fertility. Why do, why do they have a negative impact, Brian? Well, there's, okay. So in the implant, there are steroid hormones. That's what causes them to be increased muscle mass and all the positive effects as we associate with implants, but that creates a negative feedback within the body that basically said, well, I have enough steroid hormones. I don't need testicles to produce those. So, um, it's essentially the use it or use, lose it principle. And they, they basically, the medical term is atrophy, right. Or shrink and they become no longer functional. Yeah. So, so that hormone or that steroid implant is going to cause them to be problematic and they are not going to be the same reproductively. However, the implant is still going to allow them to grow. So you, you may not notice that unless you start looking at the testicles, which will be small and not be effective. Yeah. I also think, you know, he brings up heifers and there's whether to implant heifers or not is a, a good question that basically depends on because at this stage we're pasture turnout time we don't know which heifers we're going to keep as replacements and which are going to be feeder feeder heifers that what we do think we know about implanting heifers is there's two times when it's particularly harmful for the fertility of females and that is near birth and near weaning and and so if so again if you've got really young heifers uh, don't implant them if they could be replacement heifers in the future if you're approaching weaning and you know that they could be replacement heifers, don't implant them. So that leaves a gray area here, you know, kind of calves that are two, three months of age. If Again, if I know they're going to be a replacement female, I would not implant them. The, the, there's really no advantage to that. But if you don't know yet, one of the things that we talk to people about is select your replacement heifers from the oldest born calves. So my general recommendation is, well, don't implant any of the heifers that were born early. So the first 30 to 40 days in the calving season. And then if you've got younger heifers, well, they're not likely to fit it into my replacement pool. And those are the heifers that you could consider. They're probably feeder heifers. And so you could implant them. So do but mark them somehow because yeah. they will grow and they'll catch up with some of those other heifers and you'll go, man, she's good looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got to keep some, keep some records or mark it on their tag or something like that. So this is a great question because these uh, growth implants do have an effect on fertility and you have to keep that in mind. So Julia, if I'm going to, ba basically what we're saying for reproductive animals, we're not recommending an implant, but for the others, we actually are. So if we're going to implant them, what are some of the things I should think about related to technique, especially in these really young calves when we're implanting them? I think cleanliness of the protocol is really important. So making sure you're dipping that implant gun into chlorhexidine or some sort of cleaning disinfectant in between animals. You don't want to, t you don't want to carry bacteria from one animal to the next 
create an abscess around that implant and then that implant it obviously isn't going to work very well. So I think that's one. I think two is training whoever's giving that implant, make, making sure they're trained on how to do it. There is a, a level of skill that many people have that I don't. So I trust other people to be doing the implant versus me. So identifying that person on your farm to make sure they're doing it appropriately too. And then you mentioned keeping the needle clean, which I think is really important on implants. Don't always transfer that to you want to have a clean needle when you're given injections but i don't want to be putting that needle in chlorhexidine because depending on what vaccine i'm using that could that could make some changes so with vaccines a lot of times we're changing the needle a lot more frequently than we are an implant needle unless we burr that implant needle so make sure that you're using the proper cleanliness and techniques for both so as we're getting ready for pasture turnout dustin i'm going to turn to you and before we turn the cattle out, we were talking before we got on the program about what are some of the things that you'd have on your pre-pasture turnout checklist? What are some of the things you'd think about? Well, I guess one of the things, first things I'd look at is is your lease agreement, right? I mean, maybe it's a multi-year and maybe you just renewed it last year, but still it's good just to pull out, take a look at it, make sure everything's in place, make sure you understand what maybe your expenses are versus what the landowner's expenses expenses are or if you're sharing some kind of expenses just i would just pull that out just give it a quick read and make sure you're up to date and everything if not it's probably a good time to have that conversation with the landowner the pasture owner absolutely so and making sure that it, if things have changed you can update it or if you need to extend it or do something different and it may be that depending on how the year goes in your area with some of the dry areas you may need more land to lease so you may be looking at new lease agreements right especially you know i mean just looking at the drought monitor map you know western kansas you know that that region it's looking really bad and so you might want to start thinking about you know can i ship my calves somewhere else get some other pastures and there's some pretty good tools uh i think colorado state actually university has a good tool that looks at leasing pasture elsewhere and then shipping those kind of the what's the cost associated with that yeah absolutely Brian, what's on your pre-pasture turnout checklist? Well, I, I'm going to say check fences. And I think with what, what Dustin just said about maybe you're somewhat of an absentee leasey, so you're, the distance between you and the pasture might be a little farther than it has been in the past because of drought or whatever, probably even more important. So I, I always suggest, you know, take a, take a walk of the fence line. Make sure it's in good repair, both for keeping animals in, but also for keeping animals safe, right? Because if we've got a fence that's in disrepair, it's it's the potential to cause some injury that we don't want to have in our in our pasture animals, especially if I'm a, a distance where I may not be checking them as frequently as I as I really need to be. Well, and two things that we haven't had here this year, I went home recently and at my dad's place, down trees over fence yep. lines, and his water gap was, one of his water gaps was out because they'd had enough water go through, which has not been a problem here locally. But, not been a problem here, no. <laughs> but things change. Bob, uh, Bob, what are you looking at? Well, I do think we have to think about water. There's, you know, definitely the, if, if you're watering out of a pond, particularly, there's a lot of areas in the United States where, or at least maybe where I see where that those pond levels are really low. So there's a couple of things. Are is there water available? Do I need to think about bringing in a tank, finding another water source, whether I have to haul it or dig a well or do something? But I'm going to make make sure that we have water. And in some of those uh, ponds or tanks, I don't want to get cows bogged down because they're they're 
they may be going way out in, in part of the pond that's supposed to have water in it, <laughs> but this year there isn't. And so I'm really, it may, may require fencing them out of those areas if it's dangerous or if there's not good quality water there. So water is, basically water is one of my real concerns this year if you're in an area that has drought. Again, there's some real geographic differences in the United States. We did a little traveling this week and and there's, there's parts in the United States where the ponds are full and everything's good, but there's other parts where that is not the case. But start making backup plans. And I like your consideration for that boggy outer part of the pond, which nobody knows until you take that last step when you're you too far in. One step too far. Right? You went one step too far and now your boot's stuck. Well, the cows are the same way. And I don't know a good way to, and maybe maybe a path down to it, fence out other areas, and then get one spot that gets trampled down and dry. Otherwise, they're approaching from yeah. multiple angles. Good yeah. good point. Yeah, I've seen guys, you know, come in with an excavator and do some excavating, put some gravel down. So basically trying to figure out a way to get water. Basically, how do we get water to the cows? Is it yep. going to be hauling water? Is it going to be, you know, some excavator work, something? But we, we need to do that early don't uh, water is one of those things they need they need a good supply of water every day starting day one yep absolutely julia what's your considerations for pre-pasture what's on your turnout checklist i think finding or figuring out within your pastures what type of handling uh opportunities you have with your animals i mean i i know it varies from owner to owner pasture to pasture whether you have handling facilities in each one or if you need a four-wheeler or if you need a horseback to go find those animals but evaluating that at the beginning and trying to troubleshoot so that you are able to Maybe you need portable panels to go and uh, go around the, the water trough to help catch animals that might be sick. Or if you have portable panels or a portable panel and shoot system, uh, I think having a way to check those animals. Um, if they are sick, we do need to do a physical exam to get that, that correct diagnosis before you treat the animal. And so I think that's uh, something we all need to figure out. Well, I think that is an excellent point because I often don't, especially at this time of year, the grass is green. I'm optimistic. Nobody's ever going to get sick. I can turn them out in that pasture. I check the fences. They'll stay. But there are many pastures we turn out into that don't have a handling facility. And your point, which I think is really good, is you don't have to have one in there, but have a plan, right? Am I going to have some portable panels? Am I going to catch them up? How am I going to get them there? Absolutely. I think that's a, a great point. I think along with Julia's comment too is have the plan for what's going to happen if I have one case of foot rot versus an outbreak of pink eye, right? And so my handling facility needs might be different if it's one or two animals, kind of random sporadic disease versus an outbreak where I'm going to need to treat a lot of animals. Yeah, good point, Brian, because that may be, I'm going to go to the county extension or somewhere and rent a facility, whereas the other is I've, I've got a few panels and I can get a, I can get them handled or loaded on a trailer and take where they need to go. But one of the things that, Julia, you've talked about, which I appreciate and I think is important, is how we handle them. And we kind of touched on processing calves at, at turnout, which often we've got the cows running through, too. How we handle them each time leads to those experiences, which can be important by the time we get to summer and we have to go catch one in the pasture. Because you've talked about that before. And what, what are some of your principles there stockmanship wise yeah stockmanship is a huge portion of our our bqa program and it's teaching everybody who has to handle that cow uh, or that animal so anywhere from the the family kid to the grandpa to anybody in between 
they need to understand natural cattle behavior, how to use your body movement to enter that flight zone around that animal and get them comfortable with being handled either on foot or, you know, if you're in a pickup, they need to be used to that. We recommend if you're always in a pickup moving your animals, you need to get out of the pickup and walk around so they don't get scared when somebody is coming out on on feet, on foot. And uh, same thing with horses, like exposing those cattle to multiple different types of handling makes them less stressed when they do have to be separated. And it also helps them down the line, depending on where they go to the next sector of the industry. Absolutely. And being able to read their body language, because often they're tell they're telling us what they're thinking. Uh, we just don't always pay attention. So I think they'll, they'll, especially as you go through calving season or other times, those cows may have had some exposure to people, but getting that done so you can treat them when you need to is important. Thanks, Julia, for joining us. Appreciate you coming in, spending some time with us today. And as you think about some of these things we've talked about, if you want more information, you can go to the Beef Quality Assurance website through National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a great program if you're not certified. If you have questions, thoughts, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.